All right, if you would take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4, if you're not there already. Before we look at the actual chapter, I just want to remind you of what we talked about a couple weeks ago in John chapter 1, and that John is making several claims to answer the question of who is Jesus. And in John chapter 1, we learned four things about the nature of Jesus, and we also learned seven titles that were given to him or that he himself shared as well. And I said at the end of that sermon that the rest of the book, um, the challenge was to find out whether or not these claims are true. Remember that John the Baptist in John chapter 1 said, come and witness who Jesus is. I'm a witness for who he is. And so whether or not Jesus is who he says he is is going to be based on the witness of those around him and of Jesus himself. And so we're going to continue looking at John chapter 4 through that lens. Uh, but I want to um, argue, I guess, that in John chapter 4, um, Jesus is saying that he is the light of truth, that he is the illuminator of God. If you remember from John chapter 1, that was a basic statement that John makes about Jesus. Jesus is the light. He's coming to illuminate the darkness, to show us what is true about God. And I think John chapter 4 is going to make that clear. And then as far as the title for Jesus in this chapter, we're going to see whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. So those are the two things to be looking out for connected back to John 1. Okay. So John chapter 4 is very well known. You probably know the story well. Um, the woman at the well, Jesus and the Samaritan woman, it's called many things. This morning I'm calling it the meeting at the well. And what's interesting is that this scene of Jesus at the well with this woman carries with it immense significance to a Jewish reader. To those who were well-versed in the Old Testament, they would have seen this scene and instantly been clued in to several key things that I think sometimes we don't see. So I'm going to tell you what that is. I'm going to show you why I think this is so important and what I think the point that John is trying to make with this scene, why it follows chapter 3, why John points this out when the other Gospels don't. Because in John's, John's goal is to show us exactly who Jesus is, and if he's the illuminator of God's truth, and if he's the Messiah, this scene at the well is going to prove that very thing. Let me read to you some of the passage, and then I want to make a connection that is fascinating, I think, to the Old Testament. It says this in John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples did, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So the heat of the day. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, 
for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of, spring, a, a fountain of water springing into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. This scene is of particular significance and is saying something very specific to a Jewish audience because it is one in a line of well scenes. In the Old Testament, there are three times specifically where this same story, variations, but this same story plays out. And it is so important because it's dealing with the leaders of ancient Israel. In Genesis 24, Abraham's near the end of his life, Isaac is grown, and he needs to get a wife for Isaac to help continue to realize the promise that God had made that Abraham's descendants would be more numerous than the stars. Finally, you know Isaac was born, but by the time we get to Genesis 24, Abraham only has two sons. And so the line must continue. And so Abraham takes his servant and he says, go back to my home land and find a wife for my son, Isaac. And you know the story probably, the servant goes to the land, stops at a well, meets a woman there, asks for a drink, and then the woman becomes... Isaac's wife. Okay, that's a nice story. Well, then one generation later in Genesis 29, Isaac's own son, Jacob, has the exact same encounter at a well. Jacob, on the run from his brother Esau, goes back to the land that his fathers were from. He comes to a well. He meets a woman. There's water exchanged, and there's a marriage that comes out of it. And not only those two stories, but then in Exodus 2, Moses himself experiences the exact same scene. Moses is on the run from Pharaoh. He goes to the land of Midian. He finds a well. He meets a couple of ladies there, and one of them becomes his wife, Zipporah. So, okay, those are three stories that are very similar. Well, is that a pattern? Is this the same as what's going on in John chapter 4 with Jesus and the Samaritan woman? Well, I would say yes, because within those stories, there is the exact same pattern that each one follows. So let me tell you what those pattern, that the pattern is, so you can see if you see it for yourself in John 4. In each of these well-meeting scenes, there is a man who travels to a foreign land, not his current place of residence. This man comes to a well. He meets a woman at the well. 
and one or the other draws water for that person. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what that entailed. But there's a drawing of water. Then the woman always runs back to town or to home to share good, amazing news of some great thing that has just happened. Then there's always an instance of hospitality, a meal shared or an invitation for the man to come and to stay. And finally, there is a bond that is formed, a marriage bond that is made between the man and the woman. Each of those stories, and you can go back and read them if you want, Genesis 24, 29, and Exodus 2, they all follow that same beat. Little variation, but all the same. And so John chapter 4, if you know the story, you probably can already see this, but as we continue to look at it, you're going to notice that it follows the exact same pattern. And so when the ancient Jewish readers read John chapter 4, they are instantly being clued into the fact that this is more than just a casual meeting. It's more than just a missionary moment for Jesus. It's in fact a marriage proposal of the Messiah. And I'm going to show you why I think that's true and why the text is pointing that way. Here's why I think this is a little bit different and a little bit more important even than those Old Testament meetings. Because of all the things that are wrong in this story, the, th the variations that are so different from the other ones. For instance, and this is what we always focus on when we read John 4, right? Um, the, the divide between Jews and Samaritans. This is not supposed to be happening. Jesus is not supposed to be speaking with this woman. Culturally, it's just not done. There is a deep hatred between these two peoples who share a common ancestry, but throughout the history of their time have grown so far apart in how they worship and in who they worship and in how they worship them that the Jews say, Listen, we can't even come near you because you will make us unclean before God. You worship at the wrong place. You do the wrong things. You didn't stand for the people of God when there was attack. You are not like us. And the Samaritans, of course, share the same hatred for the Jews. So these two meeting shouldn't even be happening. In the other stories, the meeting is always great. It's good. It's exciting. But this should not be happening. And not to mention they're Jews and, and Samaritans, but they're also a man and a woman. And in this time, this was not to be happening. A Jewish man was not to go talk to a Samaritan woman. Just was not done culturally inappropriate. And not only that, but the fact of who this woman was, not just her ethnicity, not just her gender, but her past. Without going into too much detail, John gives us just enough to know that this woman has a checkered past. Whether or not everything was her fault, certainly some of the things, some of the reasons in the, uh, for her current situation was from her own sin. And she's a woman that no one else, her own people included, wanted to be around. 
You don't get that vibe when um, the servant of Abraham goes and meets Rebecca. You don't get that same feeling when Jacob goes to see Rachel. As soon as Jacob sees Rachel in Genesis 29, his eyes light up and he's like, oh yeah, this is my wife. I love this woman. She's so beautiful, right? Moses goes and defends Zipporah and her sisters. They're coming to them. You don't get the same feeling that, you, that is dripping from the meeting of these two characters that Jesus, this rabbi, this Jewish rabbi who's already done a miracle that we've seen and who's already taught about the coming of the kingdom and who's already, John has said, has already been, it says that he's the Messiah, the Lamb of God. This man should not be meeting with this woman. So the differences in this story are what point to the truthfulness of who Jesus is and to the power of the kingdom of God. Because of who this woman is, there's no way there's going to be a marriage here. It just can't happen. They can never be bonded together. They could never be in communion like those other stories. So perhaps the pattern fails here. It was a good attempt. It was getting us interested, but... There's no good outcome for this. Nothing good could come of this. Unless we consider what Jesus has to say in the meantime. And unless we consider who Jesus is and what he's interested in. Those things are so important and are so clearly laid out in the next few verses that there is no doubt, hopefully no doubt in your mind, that Jesus is the light of God, the illuminator of his truth, and that Jesus is the Messiah. Of course, there's plenty more to the book of John, so not everybody's gonna be convinced right away, but the point is that John is showing us exactly who Jesus is when he's at this well making a marriage proposal. Here's what he says. He says, give me a drink. And she says, why are you asking me that? I should never give you a drink. And then he says, well, let me give you a drink. And she says, you have nothing to give me a drink with. What are you talking about? She's very confused at what this man is saying to her. And then Jesus starts talking about water, living water. I think 21 times I found, 21 times um, in the first 28 verses, there is a reference to water or to the well or to being thirsty or to drinking. The theme of water is massively important to this story. It's the center of the story, this water. Now, if you think back to those Old Testament examples, those Old Testament well meetings, I want to point something out that's very important that we don't always think about. But it makes what Jesus says so much better. In those stories, when the servant of Abraham meets Rebekah, when Jacob meets Rachel, and when Moses meets the sisters, it says one of them, so in Moses' case, he draws the water. In Jacob's case, he draws the water. Uh, in the servant and, Rebe and Rebekah's case, Rebekah draws the water. Somebody draws water, but they don't just give water to the person asking for it. They also water the flocks that are around them. Or in um, Rebecca's case, she waters all the camels that this servant brought. So what they're doing is they're drawing water 
a finite amount into a bucket and they pull it out and they go and they make sure that every animal around them, so this is a flock, right? It says the flocks came. In Jacob and Rachel's case, it's not just one person's flocks, it's tons of livestock show up to this well because that's where they get their water. And so it would take, if you think about it, it's not hard to, to see, it would take hours and hours. So when the servant comes to Rebecca at the well and he says, will you give me and my camels a drink? And she says, yes. She's taking on an hour's long, arduous task that she's going to have to do the next day. When Jacob comes and, Rebecca, and, uh, and Rachel comes with her flocks and all the flocks there and Jacob says, we gotta, we gotta water these flocks. I love this woman. We gotta help her. I gotta help her. He spends hours and hours and sweat and strength watering the animals. And the same with Moses and the sisters from Midian. Watering from these wells gives life, but it's life that has to be revived the very next day. They, the flocks and the people at the wells have to continue to draw water to live. And so this woman who's coming to the well all alone because no one would be with her and she couldn't travel in safety with the other women, coming all alone has to draw water and there's this Jewish man sitting there and he asks for a drink and she's not sure what's going on. So she's like, what, what, what are you talking about? And he wants to start talking about water and she's confused. If you remember back to last week when Jesus talked to Nicodemus about the same types of things, Nicodemus was also confused he didn't understand what it meant to be born again. He didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. He could only think in terms of what he could see. And the same is true with this lady. She wants the water he has to give. It, it sounds great, right? Because he calls it living water. Water that will never require you to have to drink again. Water that's going to grow inside of you. A fountain of water springing into everlasting life. And in verse 15, the woman said, sir, give me that water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. So we know exactly what she's thinking. Great, give me this water so I don't have to come back here again. So I don't have to come back in the hardship and the shame and draw water here again. I'd love to not have to work for my life. And so then Jesus says, so, so the question is, well, what is the living water, right? Because she thinks it's something physical. She thinks it's something that he's going to maybe draw some bucket of something somewhere and give it to her, and then all of a sudden she's going to have this magical water that's always there satisfying her. And so what is this living water? Well, then Jesus goes in to describe exactly what this living water is in verses 16 through 26. He says this, Jesus told, said to her, go. Call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have well said that I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. I'm kind of changing the subject really quick. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. 
And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Your worship, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who's called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In verses 16 through 26, Jesus shows her exactly what living water is, what he's talking about. He's not talking about that need for water that our physical bodies have. He's not talking about eliminating the need for her to come back to the well. He's not talking about that sort of a thing. He's talking about something deeper, something that the servant of Abraham could never give or Isaac could never give his wife, something that Jacob could never give his wife, something that Moses could never give his wife. He's talking about something on a completely different level. Soul satisfying water to revive our hearts. And not just to revive our hearts to life, but to revive our, revive our hearts to everlasting life. Jesus is talking about connecting you and me and this woman and people in need, sinners in need, to a holy God. The author of all life. Remember back in John 1, John talks about creation, right? He starts, he's like, where are we going to start? Let's start right at the beginning, right in the creation. And he starts showing how Jesus is the power of creation. If you're the power of creation, you have the power of life. And Jesus is saying to this Samaritan woman who's thirsty, physically and spiritually, he says to her, I have the life you need. And I'll give you this life so that you don't need to ever get another drink again. It's a one-drink deal, and it continues to overflow from there. In verses 16 through 18, This living water shows this woman the truth about herself. Jesus illuminates the darkness of her own past and heart. He confronts her about the things that have brought her to shame, the things that have caused her to become an outcast among her own people. And he doesn't condemn her He doesn't hold anything over her. He simply asks her a few questions for her to look inwardly. And she responds in truth. She tells him the truth. And Jesus commends her for that. And the living water is starting to now soak into her because she is honestly looking at the sin in her own life. And so that's one thing that this living water does is it illuminates the truth 
about ourselves and our need for forgiveness. And it doesn't just do that, but as the water continues to revive this woman's soul and bring new life to her spirit, in verses 19 through 24, then Jesus illuminates the truth about God for this woman. So in, the, uh, in an attempt, I think, to, uh, to kind of change the subject after Jesus, you know, after she points out that she doesn't have a husband and she has this past, to change the subject, then she kind of throws out something at him maybe to get him off, off his game. And she says, and then she kind of she comes back at him like, well, well, wait a second here. Let's, let's talk about worship and how, and how the Jews say there's only one place to worship and, and I can't be part of any of that. And so Jesus' living water comes to her and he says, well, listen, I got something to tell you about that as well. I've got some illumination for you on that, some truth to give you, some life to give you. Yes, the Jews say that you can only worship in one place and Jerusalem is the place that God wanted and God ordained for this time, but there's coming a time, a day and an hour, and look at what he says, it's now here. When where you are and everything around you does no longer matter. In fact, God isn't interested in the physical part of it all. He's most interested in the heart. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That's who God is seeking. When your heart is interested in worshiping the Lord and when your heart is convinced, your heart is turned, your heart faces that, your heart is what drives and motivates your worship. Many of the, several of the Gospels record Jesus going to the temple, and you know what he does. He has a confrontation. He overturns the tables. He's not happy about what he sees. And there are various reasons on various different levels. And I think one of the main things is, and I think this is important to never forget when we read that account, is that the people are so convinced that this is where I have to come, this is what I have to bring, this is how much I have to give, and that's what earns God's favor. And Jesus comes and he says, you don't need this, you need me. I'm the sacrificial lamb, I'm the temple, I'm what connects you to God, I'm the living water to revive your soul. Not that those things aren't important and were important for a time. God said to do them, of course. But even God himself in the Old Testament said on several occasions, this is just a picture of something greater to come. It never was about that. It was always about worshiping God with the heart. And Jesus has come to give living water to revive dead sinful hearts to him. So Jesus illuminated this woman's inner life. He illuminated her understanding of God and what he requires. And so the living water of Jesus then created a response. And if you remember back to the beats of these types of stories, right? After the water is drunk, what does the woman always do? She runs back proclaiming good news. 
And we see the exact same thing here, that once this woman's life and heart are revived by the loving, saving grace of Jesus, after he speaks to her that he is the Messiah, in verse 28, it says this, the woman then left her water pot, went away into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And the Samaritans came out to find Jesus. The woman runs back yelling, I've just had an encounter unlike anything I've ever had before. She is energized to go and share that these people need to hear from Jesus. And so then the story again continues to follow the same pattern of these well meetings. Um, it says that Jesus stayed for two days in Samaria. So he stays with them. He's invited in to the city to continue to teach. And of course, at the end of these stories, there's a marriage bond formed. And while Jesus didn't actually marry this woman, we can see from the differences in this story compared to the others that it was never about that physical bond of marriage in the way we think about it. But it's about the Messiah who has come to call his bride. This woman was bound to Christ in a way she had never been bound to men before. And it was thanks to his living water. So, the question is, at the end of this story in John 4, who is Jesus? What are you convinced about him so far? I would argue that this chapter, or this story proves that Jesus is the illuminator of truth. That he shined a light into this lady's heart, her understanding of herself and her understanding of God. And he showed her what was true and what could be true if she drank from his living water. I think he did that. I also think that Jesus lived up to that title so far of Messiah. It's interesting to note because we're going to keep going through John, so keep this in mind, uh, especially compared to last week. Two similar conversations, right? Last week, Jesus speaks with Nicodemus, and he doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus is like, well, here is what my kingdom's about. Let me tell you what you need to know. And the same thing here. This lady thinks Jesus is talking about something else, and he says, no, 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 I'm, I'm talking about the kingdom and what is true about the kingdom. Similar conversations contrasted in very interesting ways. One is a Jew like Jesus, so that's fine. He's a leading teacher of Israel. He's a prominent person. He knows the law. He should have known. And this lady is very different from that. Complete opposites and all that. But what's interesting to note is that this is the first person, Jesus, for the public, that Jesus reveals himself to as the Messiah. He does not say to Nicodemus, I'm the Messiah. He doesn't end the conversation that way. But with this lady, he says, I am him. So just if you're keeping a track of what's going on in the story, this is the first reveal of Jesus as the Messiah publicly. It's going to be important. Okay. Let me say this. Oh, and just in case you're not sure, or this is just a 
if this is actually anything to do with marriage, I find it interesting that in John 3, at the very end, Jesus is called the groom right before John then shares this story. So people are asking John the Baptist about him, and, and, and is he upset that Jesus is coming and, 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 um, and making disciples, and now that he's kind of like moved in on John the Baptist's turf, right? And John the Baptist says in verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. And John's saying, I'm the best man at the wedding, and Jesus is the groom. And then we have this marriage proposal story that the Israelites would have looked at, or the Jews would have looked and said, oh my goodness, John's making a very bold claim about who this Jesus is. So, consider this, that Jesus is setting the precedent for what kind of a Messiah he's going to be. You know what people expected. We've talked about it a lot, and we'll continue to talk about it as we go through John, that people expect a conquering hero riding in, on a war horse with all the armies of heaven coming to slay the Romans and set up the Jewish kingdom of God. That's what they expect. And here, early on, in John chapter four, Jesus is saying exactly what kind of Messiah he is. He's a groom seeking a bride. But that bride has a couple of issues. Sin makes that bride unworthy to be married So he's not just seeking the bride, he's seeking to clean the bride, to give living water that will cleanse of sin and that will illuminate the truth and will make the bride worthy of the honor of marriage. And he's seeking to bind himself to her forever. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for Sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming to this earth, for taking on flesh and all the suffering and the hardships of what it means to be human, Lord. Thank you for choosing to come and to be like me. And Lord, I thank you for the living water that you offer, that you are interested, that you desire to save sinners to clean us of our sin and to bring us into fellowship, into this bond, an intimate bond with you. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has not drunk of the living water, that you would move their spirit towards that end, that you would revive their hearts. And Father, thank you that what you've given us in your word is a continual spring that never dries up. Lord, may we continue to rest in your living water and to grow in it. Father, we pray that you are honored and glorified by what's been said this morning in your name. Amen.